For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Hell, I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise, get to the stuff we really need to know, information, not affirmation, discern the times we live in so we can know what's going on. Uh, let's start with Congress. It's a big old hot mess, as we've been predicting, as we've been talking about, as everybody who paid a lick of attention to what was going to happen when this Congress tried to seat itself. This is a big old hot mess. Kevin McCarthy has failed on three ballots to try to become the Speaker of the House, and that has ground everything to a halt. Here's the thing. Despite what you see in some news reports and things like this, Congress isn't even sworn in yet because you got to elect the Speaker of the House first, and then he swears everybody in. That's how bad a mess this is. Uh, let's strip this down though there's a lot of politics involved here and everybody's caught up in the moment of the thing what's our core principle here things do not happen in a vacuum they happen in a sequence let's talk about the sequence of events but let's take the politics out of it for just a second and just talk about it from a leadership perspective say you're in a company say you're in a civic organization or you're a religious group or your church or whatever even a household leadership matters and the thing about leadership is it should be self-evident, especially good leadership should be self-evident. So when you see chaos, there's a leadership problem. hundred times out of a hundred, there's no debating it. If there's chaos, there's a leadership problem. If there's dissension, there's a leadership problem. If you can't get the things done that you as an organization are supposed to be doing, there's a leadership problem. And when the leaders and the people they're supposed to be leading are not in concert, it's very apparent. It's not something you have to explain to people. They can just look at it and see it, even if they don't know anything about your organization or what you're supposed to do or what you're all about. If there's chaos, they just know that leadership is not present. I think that's how we need to look at how this con Congress is kicking off right now with the new GOP majority. It's chaos. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have a plan. You can just look. It's a failure of leadership. Kevin McCarthy has been the de facto leader, both because he was a majority leader, but because he was planning for years to become Speaker of the House. And he's cut deal after deal after deal to try to do that. This goes back to basic leadership stuff, though, in a couple of ways. Let's talk about it just real briefly, because, again, the politics are the politics, but things like leadership are universal. One of the most important things I was ever taught and learned and, frankly, learned the hard way from a great leader when I first started to try to become a leader more than just a screwed up young person with no goals and actually learned my craft and learned how to become a man and do things the right way was leadership is self-evident. And it was explained to me by my old chief this way is 
if you have to tell people you're in charge, you're not. Part of what's going on with Kevin McCarthy here is just basic failed leadership. People don't respect him and people don't take him seriously. And it's obvious they don't like him. Now, there's a lot of political reasons for that you can delve into. But let's take just a couple of lessons in leadership here. One is all of a sudden, after years and years of doing backslapping and deals and go along to get along, and after a couple of weeks since the midterm elections of promising the world to people who don't like him very much, he decided at the last minute he's going to be a hardliner and draw a line in the sand and hold it and tell everybody to walk up to the line whether you like it or not. This is a basic leadership principle. You may have heard this from parenting sort of things. It's like it's easy to tighten up the rules at the beginning and then you can loosen them as you go. But you can't do it the other way around, whether it's your kids, whether it's a company, whether it's whatever. I even heard that when I was in the military. You can start tight. You can always loosen up the rules as you go as people get in line. But if you start loose and you come to tighten up, nobody's going to respect you because you were that loose guy. You were the get along guy. You were everybody's friend. You can't tighten it up and be the hard case leader after that. Doesn't work. We're seeing a little bit of that right now. Another part of leadership, communication. Can you communicate with people and get them to do what you want to do? Now, in Congress, this comes out to votes. There's an old saying in Congress is if you got the votes, vote. If you don't got the votes, don't vote. Why is that? You lose face. You lose power. You lose your leadership. People don't respect you if you go and lose a vote. The idea that you're going to go and lose multiple votes and then try to say, I'm a great leader, it's a whole lot of hubris, but it's just a basic leadership principle. You end up looking bad. Remember our little country churches we grew up in. I remember my dad telling me something really, really smart. He said, why would we ever hold a vote where anybody voted against anything? You might have one or two cranks, but if everybody's not on board, don't have a vote on it. Because when you have votes, there's one thing that always happens on a vote. You get winners and you got losers and losers aren't going to like it. And there's going to be problems going down the road. Now it's the job of Congress to vote. You can't have, you know, 80, 20 votes on everything. You should probably have a plurality before you try to go vote. There's a reason it's been over 100 years since we've had a spectacle this bad in trying to get a Speaker of the House elected. It's because these things are predetermined. Now, a lot of people shrink back and go, oh, that's politics. That's bad. In this case, it's not really bad. It's basic leadership stuff of I've got my ducks in a row. We're going to go in. We're going to take care of this technicality of electing the leader who's already done all the groundwork to become the leader. And then we're going to go about the business of the Congress. Kevin McCarthy couldn't even complete that basic step. Now, there's a lot of back history here. You can go all the way back to 2015. The first time Kevin McCarthy tried to become speaker and God rest his soul, Walter Jones took care of that real quick with a little letter. But you can Google that on your own time, kids. Read up on things from the way, way back of 2015. They got us Paul Ryan as speaker. But let's remember something here. When you turn down the noise of the politics, can they do the job? Are they a leader? Kevin McCarthy is trying to become a very important leader in our country. The Speaker of the House, the number three post in the line of secession, the person who represents the people's house and the people's business based on elections. Yes, the GOP has a thin majority, but this is where it bit them because now they're being beholden to a small part of their party. It's a mess. You want to be a leader. You shouldn't have to tell people you're in charge. 
You shouldn't have to have a conference committee where you tell people you deserve something. Don't ever do that, by the way. If you think you want to be a leader of any capacity, never give a speech in front of people where you say you deserve such and such and such and such. That's a death nail. You don't have to tell people you're in charge. If you have to tell people you're in charge, you're not. And if you have to have multiple votes about it before you know the outcome of those votes and you don't know for sure that you're going to get all those votes, you're really not in charge. So underneath all the politics and everything else with Kevin McCarthy, he failed a basic leadership test. So no, he doesn't deserve to be leader. He didn't put the work in by any definition of the term. And it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. More hotel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. I'm very excited about this new face on the program, but somebody I'm very excited to talk to. He is the editor-in-chief of The Voice down in Atlanta. He's going to tell you all about that in just a minute. Donnell Suggs, how are you, sir? Good morning, brother. I'm fine. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I love having you. This is one of the reasons I do social media. I get to meet new people, and now I've got an excuse to talk to them. So great mm -hmm. to talk to you. Let's start big picture for a second, because I had something happen back when we were covering the midterms. I was talking to one of our regular election folks that does the data and stuff. I think politically, culturally, demographically, economically, any of those major narrative stories that we're covering nationally, and of course those show up at election time, I find Atlanta to just be one of the real fascinating places to watch in the country. I'm an outsider, you're an insider, you're there, you're right there. Does it feel that way to you folks that you really do have a microcosm of a lot of the wider issues going on and we got them all right there in Atlanta right now? You're, you're, you're spot on. I think what's special about Atlanta is it really isn't Georgia. What Atlanta is, is the best of what America can be with, with the ethnicities and different cultures, and also sort of kind of what happens when one, a city grows so fast that it has to just kind of be in the spotlight, even if it doesn't want to be. Um, I always tell people Atlanta and Georgia are two different things. Atlanta's the capital city, but it, it's, it's like nothing else in Georgia. So politically, it's like nothing else in Georgia, and now it feels like it's like nothing else in America. And that's really special. That's really special to be a part of that right, as, at this time. Yeah, and your own story fits directly into that. You're actually a Brooklyn guy. Uh, you've sure. been there for quite a while now, so you know, no shame in saying you're an Atlanta original native, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But you're one of them. Take your own story. Walk people through that. You came to Atlanta. You're part of that story. You came into that community. You're raising your family there now. What got you there and what makes you stay there and work? 16 years in Atlanta, 17 years this June, met my wife here, my son was born here, my, my newspaper career really blossomed here. I moved here with the opportunity to work for a lot of smaller black newspapers, because Atlanta still had those. Whereas in New York, 
there might be a few, but it just it was just harder to break into the industry as a young man without a ton of references outside of college newspapers. So Atlanta gave me my start. And in the meantime, in 2006, the Atlanta continues to change. So I'm kind of going along for that ride. And um, I just think that uh, Georgia as a whole, but Atlanta in particular, is that story for a lot of people. They moved here from Detroit and Chicago and Philly, et cetera, New York, of course, New Jersey. And we got to start maybe a different industry or we got a fresh start in the industry that we love in Atlanta, at least at that time, because it wasn't as crazy as it is now as far as um, 8 million people when I got here, might've been like five. And it was still like, oh, people saying, where are you going? Atlanta, where? okay, why? And now it's like, oh, where are you going? Atlanta, oh, of course. And that's the change. So I think my story is very similar to a lot of people. That is just a place where you can get a fresh start or get the start you were looking for. And um, that's definitely what happened to me. Yeah, Donnell Suggs, he's the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. You just mentioned it. You got your start in newspapers and writing. We've been talking a lot, and we covered on our show, and we have reporters on Always Talk to Him. We really, it is a big thing in our country, this dynamic, the nationalization of media. Even though Atlanta is a major city, there's still local reporting that's really, really, really important. We just saw this with the Santos story in New York. Local people had it. National media ignored it. There's lots of examples of this. Even in a major metro like Atlanta, one of our fastest growing biggest metro, the diversity of it, the size of it, the way it's growing, the politics of it that we've seen in the last couple elections, local media, even in a big city like that, really, really matters still, doesn't it? It does. It does. You're not going to get the stories about um, local politicians. You're not going to get the stories about city council. You're not going to get the stories about the school districts from a national media standpoint, unless something major happens, i.e. Herschel Walker, Senator Reverend Warnock, when they got down to the nitty gritty, then of course, by the time they debate in Savannah, I'm elbow to elbow with CBS, CNN, ABC, and Fox News. I didn't see any of those people on the campaign trail in the early going when he first announced it, which I get it. I get it. It's not a natural story yet. Then once it becomes one, now I'm like in a scrum with like Fox News, and it's, and it's great. For me, it's great. I know local people don't like to have you know, the nationals kind of come in and bombard, but because we were on board from day one, I'm treated just like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal when there's a scam. As a matter of fact, maybe even better in some cases in regards to Warnock's campaign because they saw me when he was doing church parking lots on the west side of Atlanta with like 25 people outside. So when there's, there's 25,000 people in Collins Park and President Obama's coming, they still see me. So local news is very important because we have the relationships that, that form when it isn't the coolest story in America. So when it becomes the coolest story in America, we're still there. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because this is a part, this is why the just banging on the media, and I've tried to quit saying media, I try to distinguish news media, broadcast media, those are very different things. Social you just media. Mentioned, these are still people and these are still relationships, even though it's a big business. So, yeah, you need to build that relationship with a CBS News, a Fox News, an MSNBC, whoever the big national carriers is. They're like, oh, well, we know we can go to this guy and get good information. We can go to this outlet or we can go to this specific reporter. People can do that with their social media, though, too, even if they're other parts of the country. Start following specific reporters, specific outlets. That's actually how you start making media better instead of just bashing the nameless, faceless, the media, right? Please. I think it's great that we separate media, which is a form of communication from journalists, which is a professional person that knows how to deliver a message. Just like I can sing, but it's not well. I don't want to call myself a singer just because I sang a song in the shower this morning. You shouldn't call yourself a journalist if you're just out there writing something down on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. 
So that's okay, but that's a form of media. Just like my singing is a form of noise. <laughs> that's a form of media and that's okay. So I think the locals are, our jobs are so much more important now because there's so many people who can get a message out. It might not necessarily be a good one or even true. So you need to have that, so that local media there, that source that you can trust and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm just going to check AtlantaVoice.com or I'm going to check Daniel's Twitter feed because he's, he's usually involved in that stuff. And that's happened a bunch of times, especially during the, um, the campaign. Yeah, Donnell Suggs, he's the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. Let's talk about the Voice for a second because mm. there's a long history of um, specific newspapers in America. And of course, newspapers are now more digital-minded, so it turns to black newspapers. Other ethnic groups had their own newspapers. This is a long tradition that kind of sort of dropped off in the last few years. But there's folks like you, I know in my home state, uh, even as non-racially diverse as West Virginia can be, we have Black by God, things like this. There seems to be a movement back towards this using the new technology with the old ideas. Why is it so important for these people groups, whether it's a black group or whatever, to have their own voice and their own media? Because like we talked with local media, there's some stories that you can just cover that way that nobody else can. And I think you just said it best. Not that a white reporter from the New York Times couldn't come to Atlanta and tell a story about a lady with a, fly, a flower shop in College Park, Georgia. Not saying that he or she couldn't do that, but would they do that? I think local media in West Virginia, Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Tribune, for example, one of my favorite black newspapers, Amsterdam News, one of my favorite black newspapers in, Atlanta, uh, in New York, Atlanta Voice, et cetera. I think we have a beat on some of that more ground level stuff that you still need and in the case of websites like uh, word in black um there there are websites that are saying hey listen let's get these black newspapers together let's get online let's make it a let's make a digital front and get the word out still because i think it's still important that we tell our own stories still we were doing that in the in the 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s because we couldn't get into main mainstream media and then once we began to do that just like in college and sports as well well, then maybe I don't need to write for the Atlanta Voice. I can write for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And there are some great journalists there. I don't care what color they are. But in the same token, I'm at a Clayton County school talking to someone at a warming station in Jonesboro that no one else would care about because they don't. it's not on their beat. Whereas with me, it's more local, so I better get down there. And you end up, getting you end up being able to tell really good stories. So I feel like the push towards black journalism i think it's 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 a real thing and even though we are a lot of i just came from a major newspaper the atlanta business chronicle is a major news it's the second largest paper in the state of georgia and it's the i feel my money i feel like it's the most important because we talk about development and business i was there when the opportunity came to run the black newspaper in town i jumped at it because i felt like it was important to be able to continue to tell our stories Donnell Suggs, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. Let's take an example that you already mentioned. Um, Senator Warnock, now senator. I'm an outsider. I'm a national guy. So I'm basically going off what I read and talking to people. And when I talk to people about the last runoff and it ran into this runoff with Senator mm -hmm. Warnock, 
that first runoff race, there was the national narrative and then the Trump jumped in and then there was the complete disaster piece of the GOP and how they handled that and telling their own voters not to vote and all that. That was the national narrative. But when I talked to people locally and I started talking to sources like what you folks do, they're like, no, no, no. There's a story with the Raphael Warnock, the church stuff, some of the really ugly stuff that how personal that race got. And it carried over because it was only two years until the next one. That was the local story that the national kind of missed. And that is one of those great examples of like politically, everybody's like, well, how did how did you see this coming? Well, because if you talk to the local people, the story was completely different than the national narrative that came in later. And now you got it now on his own terms, Senator Warnock. Again, we were covering Warnock when the idea was just floated about him two years ago, potentially running for Senate. So this wasn't new stuff for us. We were covering Ebenezer Baptist Church whenever they had MLK um, different celebrations, et cetera. So again, he was familiar to us. So when we jumped into this thing, it wasn't like we were talking about someone that we had to kind of discover. We knew him already and it just read differently. It, it doesn't have to read better. It just read differently because I was already covering his church or I was already talking to parishioners at his church. So it wasn't, it wasn't like we parachuted in and tried to figure out this guy. We knew this guy. And I think that's the strength of being the only black newspaper, the only black print and online newspaper in Atlanta, we still have that cachet with a lot of these people, especially particularly a reverend at the most prominent church in the city. I think in the city period, let alone black church. So that comes with being local and already being on the ground. And that's a culture thing, you know, black church, man, it, even if you come from a church background, that's unique in and of itself. It really needs to explain to folks that don't understand it because it was really one of those things with, and this is the best way I can think to explain it. You can explain it better than me. It's like, look, this is one of those things that's inserted. Like we talk amongst ourselves about certain things, but you don't get a, you don't get to criticize it from the outside. It was that kind of a dynamic, but a national audience may not be familiar with, especially Southern church culture in that community. The black church was the place where we could go kind of like the kind of like how guys talk at the barbershop now let's take it back to when we couldn't drink out of that water fountain or sit at that uh, that uh, lunch counter but the black church was the place where you can go quote unquote let your hair down and have our conversations about how things are going to go and in some cases during the civil rights movement have our conversations about what we're going to do so the black church has a certain cachet and and prominence still to this day that that's a place where we can be ourselves and you don't have to necessarily mix words or or keep some things under wraps you know these days now you, you get canceled for everything well i've been to, i've been to uh, black churches where folks is talking about how we're raising our kids why we don't have jobs how we're how you're dealing with your wife and it's like this is your father your mother in a sense your pastor telling you this is how you're supposed to do it you ain't doing it right and that's why black church is still extremely important yeah, Donnell Suggs joining us, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. We're going to link to it, by the way, so you can find his publication and the great work. He's got some really good young reporters. I was reading through this stuff. The The key to the First Amendment, when we talk about freedom of speech, is do you tolerate somebody that's against your speech? Do you defend their right to say something you disagree with? It's kind of the same thing with the press. We need to have an adversarial press because there's a lot of accountability that needs to go away, and everybody covers things a little differently. You know, it's almost like the old Jordan thing, you know, <laughs> Republicans buy shoes too, right? Uh, if you're on the right, you should be pro protective of progressive press. Progressive press should be protective of conservative press. This this thing all goes together. 
how do we get past that so that we're talking about journalism? Because it really does seem like it's gotten more and more partisan and there's nothing wrong with that. But overarching that is, I think there's been some taking advantage of the freedom of the press under the guise of that. And we're missing the bigger picture. Like, no, 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 we need all of this media working, even if they're across purposes sometimes, because when it comes to things like government or corruption or big corporations or demographic changes or whatever, the press is still supposed to be that outlet between the people and those halls of power. How do we tell that story a little bit better in a bigger picture way? So like, Hey, even if I disagree with this publication, it's important that they're there. I'm going to, I'm going to use this moment to, to take a shot at television and radio. I think they're more bipartisan than we are in the printed press because we can't be, unless you're literally like, you know, telling you, uh, advertising yourself as a right wing this or right wing that. For the most part, we're reporters and we're going to ask questions of people and we're going to report it. I think television and particularly television and then radio are like, wait a minute, we need these audiences. So we better go down this lane. Fox News has phenomenal journalists there, but they have a job and they have bosses that make them say some of the things they say. Tucker Carlson is a really good journalist. I don't think people, a lot of people know he's an excellent reporter. But no one cares anymore because on TV, he's saying these things that make you say, oh, either I love this guy or I hate this guy. And he's got to do what he has to do to feed his family. I get that. I wish he wouldn't and be a little more careful. With that said, I think with, as me as a newspaper reporter and someone that writes for a printed paper and online, I have to just be gray. Here's what happened. I'm at the Walker. I'm at, I was at Walker. Um, rallies i was at warnock rallies for example it wasn't like i was telling some more than the others and i think that's that's the the difference between those two mediums those three mediums and i think we should get back to having all three mediums radio tv and print just be journalist and not necessarily have any sides when did that happen we didn't used to have that but you know this is grown folk talk that we do here we don't yell we talk through things you're in a business you run the paper you're an editor-in-chief you understand that that digital side is now the lifeblood of print media. I mean, you just got to be or you're dead because we've seen it all across the country. Mm. How do you transfer that to the new technology without changing the principles of it? Because that's what the media, the print media, um, like, again, let's break this down. Broadcast media, that's a whole different business model than journalism, than investigative journalism, than print media. How does print media push ahead because you're doing it. This is your job now. You try to take print media and investigative reporting and put it in a digital context. How do you see it as somebody that's doing it and trying to evolve with it as it's changing under your feet? And being, you mentioned earlier, I have a really good young journalist. When I, you say young, they're like 24 and 21 in particular. They're kids. And their mindset is get in front of a camera or get on social media or, or try to write a hot take. And I'm training them to say, listen, you can have a hot story and have it still be journalism. Uh, let's utilize social media. Let's get on Twitter and let's utilize that to say, hey, we're here at this place. There's still a way for me to do it. The website is the lifeblood. It's just bottom line. The ads online cost, make us more money than ads in print. People still want that. But I have to be clear, all the stories have to be for online. So there's a balance. But I think there's a way for us to do that and still be on social media as well because that's a way to get to. So I meet so many more people on Twitter than I do in real life. You know, yourself included. I have all these friends that wish me happy birthday and happy anniversary. And you're like, man, I'm never going to see this guy. I'm never going to see this girl. But we're all friends because of social media. And that's a way we can do our journalism as well. We just got to be really careful with making sure it's journalism and not just putting something online because some certain company wants to pay this much money for an ad. 
We get that all the time. We're the black newspaper in town. A lot of companies want to reach black audiences, or at least pretend that they are. And they'll come to us and say, hey, here's this big, I'm not going to name a company, here's this big ad or whatever. Could you put that by a story about this? And sometimes I have to push back with my publishers and say, wait, wait, wait. That's fine. Put the ad there, but we're going to write the story like we would have wrote the story without the ad. So there's a balance. But it's been fun because, again, now I have a, ch a chance to shape the news a little bit instead of just being a reporter. So it's been a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, though. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, Donnell Scruggs, uh, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. Let, let's throw some good news in that mix, though, because some of this has been a little heavy. One thing I find interesting with the younger journalists coming up, younger commentators that I get to work with and do some mentoring with them, one of the things I really like to do is this stuff is their natural ecosystem, though. So there's actually going, I think there's going to be some innovation in this because you don't have to train them to do TikTok. You don't have to train them to multi-platform. They just naturally do it. They already know, they brand themselves. You don't have to teach them, brand, you, know, you know, our age group, we talked about networking back in the day, right? You don't have to tell them that. They do it naturally. It's their natural language. Some of this, I think, is just going to kind of fix itself because I think this upcoming generation that's already technologically savvy, if you can do what you just said about mentoring them, 
they already got the rest of it. I think we're actually on the brink of seeing some real innovation in how things like media and journalism are done just because this group of people are going to do it in a way that's never been done before. The business has changed. The business has changed. Now you have publications that you don't need a print press. You don't need an office. There's some that don't even have an office. It's just like we all get on Google Meet and we'll have our staff meeting and then boom, guys or girls are out covering stories, national stories, local stories. So the business will change. And thankfully, these these young people, I call them kids sometimes. I'm 40, I'm 45. I call them a kid. If you're 21, you, I could be your dad. And it's like, that's amazing because I was always the kid in the newsroom. I was always, up until the, the, my last job, I was one of the youngest reporters there. And now it's like 45 is the old guy, which is great because I still have those things where I say, wait a minute, go back and ask that one more question. Or I know they're Zooming the press conference, but it's right downtown. Go ahead and go to that. You still need guys like us to say, go to the press conference. I know it's on Zoom, or I know they're gonna have it on whatever, but go down there and check it out. So these kids are coming with a ton of talent and a ton of techno technological skill, but there's still room for, ask another question, call them back, go visit that said business or that said politician. So it's the business is changing for sure, but some of our old tenants, they still matter. Yeah. Donnell Suggs, he's the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice. Okay, we talked about parachuting. For folks that want to work on that, now that the elections are done, people leave Georgia alone for at least, you know, 12 months or so until we do the next batch of elections. It's going to be a very important state in 2024. Let's not kid ourselves. But locally, what's a couple of the big picture stories over the next year or two? Are you looking at Atlanta that the national audience or international audience should not, you know, they're not going to follow it all the time, but maybe just bookmark it like, I need to check on this. Is it the demographic changes? Is it the economics? Is it the Buckhead stuff? What's the stuff that you're watching and kind of keeping an eye on between now and the election? When So when folks parachute back in, you can be like, oh, we've been here. Here's your cue card on what you need to talk about. Well, everyone, don't waste your time on the Buckhead stuff. That was um, BS from the, from the, from the gate. <laughs> We're not going to annex off the most expensive properties in the, in the city because someone wants a fence around it. So that's out. Don't worry about that. Um, we still should keep an eye on Senator Warnock. As a matter of fact, he just got sworn in. What's that? Today. He's going to get sworn in today. And um, Senator Ossoff will be going up 2024. So keep an eye on that. Uh, he'll be right back to have to um, get back out on the campaign. Um, I think you should keep an eye on Georgia as a, um, a battleground state. This is going to be huge, like you said, in 2024. Georgia, Georgia might be, again, once again, be the key state for whomever is running against Joe Biden. I'm assuming Joe Biden's going to run again, um, running against Joe Biden for the presidency. And um, if that's the case, we're right back to where we were being, you know, the key battleground state and being just um, having all eyes on us. So we should just keep an eye on that. This 2024 will be here in no time. I feel like it's right around the corner already. And we just started 2023. Yeah, it sure is. Donnell sucks. Okay. We talked a lot about accountability, the importance of journalism accountability. However, friends have to hold friends accountable. I've got to ask you, it's right in your bio, so i got to bring it up. I'm going to quote you here. You're a devout Met fans, and you believe Fellini's Pizza on Ponce is the best pizzeria in Atlanta. Donnell Suggs, defend your choices. I'm, <laughs> I'm never going to change that. Fellini's Pizza tastes like New York pizza, and I, can, and I cannot be more complimentary than that in regards to pizza. I'm a Brooklyn native. I lived there until I went to college, obviously, in Pennsylvania and then got back home for a couple years and moved to Atlanta. Fellini's Pizza on Ponce, there's three Fellini's by the way. Fellini's Pizza on Ponce would be exactly, the, if you flew in today and said, let's get lunch, I would take you to Fellini's without even telling you. 
that's what I would do to every all my friends that come into town. I got to get them a slice of pizza, and it's the best. So I'm not gonna, that and Waffle House is the best restaurant in America. Those two things I'll never change. Yeah, I'm with you on Waffle House. I just did a trip to Chicago, so I've been getting Pizza War compliments for the last couple of weeks. So that's serious about that pizza. We'll put Fellini's on the list. Uh, Donnell Suggs, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on. Let them know about the Atlanta Voice and where they can keep track of you until we see you and your friends again on Hertel. Please, please follow the Atlanta Voice on, at, on Twitter at the Atlanta Voice. Also on at the website theatlantavoice.com and me at Suggs S U G G S writer W R. I T E R on Twitter. Um, we're everywhere, man, in Atlanta. If it's local, if it's national with an Atlanta bent or a Georgia bent, we'll be there. So please follow us. Thank you. Yep. Lots of good food content on his. You know how much we love our food sure. because that, those of us that's got to do this culture and politics things online, that's our same place. That's why we do all that food stuff. Um, so we'll keep doing that, sir. I greatly appreciate your time. Looking forward to having you back soon. Donnell oh, Suggs, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Yes, sir. Going back to her tell let's go back overseas um part of the problem with covering war is it's so awful it's hard to actually cover it and explain to people that have never seen war or don't understand things like displaced people's groups not just the violence of the frontline action but what it does to civilian populations what it does to displace people the refugee crisis of people trying to get out of the war zone things like this uh let's go over to der spiegel that's a german outlet that you should put in your rotation by the way um, I'm just going to read an excerpt from this. This is a very long piece on the children of the war in Ukraine, an example from one family. Um, it's got about six people in the byline, so I won't read the whole thing, but I want to read an excerpt of it. We'll link to it. Please read the entire thing for yourself. It touches on a lot of different things. One is when the Russians came in, they've been displacing Ukrainian children and taking them back to Russia. They say, we're going to save your children. What they're really doing is patriating them to Russia and making them Russian and folks can't find their children again. That's an awful situation. We also are aware of the human rights violations and the war crimes that the Russians are doing in Ukraine. Uh, we've talked about that extensively, but let's just go through some of this because we don't want to lose perspective of some of the things going on in the world. Reading from Der Spiegel here, according to the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, you remember that around Halloween every year, there are around 1.2 million minors among the 6.5 million internally displaced peoples in Ukraine, and no Ukrainian children currently have access to regular schooling, the agency says. Uh, since October, Russia has been regularly targeting the infrastructure of Ukraine, thus the only preventing in-person schooling, but through extended power outages, even the digital lessons that some folks can do. Even newborns, infants, and small children are being affected by the war because it begins at birth. This is a quote. Continues when it comes to vaccinations and early childhood development, and then again when it comes to transition to schooling. This has all been interrupted. Some 3,600 schools and kindergartners, kindergartens have been destroyed across the country. Let me say that again. 3,600 schools and kindergartens have been destroyed across the country. Ukraine is at the risk of losing an entire generation. The consequences of miseducation and serious trauma could become lifelong burdens for the millions of Ukrainians 
and serve as a drag on the social development. According to the Ukrainian government, the Russian occupiers have also kidnapped at least 13,000 children, maybe more, taking them back to Russia to be raised by Russian families. In November's speech to the G20, Vladimir Zelensky spoke of tens of thousands of additionally deported children about whom the country only has indirect or incomplete accounts. Even for the UN, it's impossible to compile a precise view of the situation faced by the children in Ukraine and thus the plan to appropriate aid measures. We've never experienced a crisis of this magnitude, says Sahin. That's the UN person. Quote, the situation is constantly changing and there are stark differences between different parts of the country. UN organizers have no presence in all the Russian occupied areas and quote together with our partner organizations we are requesting free access to those areas end quote in occupied eastern ukraine thousands of children have experienced war occupation for over eight years now olena Zelensky, the first lady and president of vladimir Zelensky, has become a kind of patron for the children of ukraine and a flag bearer for the aid response in the country thousands of ukrainian children witness death their lives are threatened they are faced dangers and fears and they are all unexpectedly and unfortunately become mature, she said at a UNICEF conference, quote, but they remain children and are vulnerable. We can't allow the burden of their experience to ruin. little on down in the piece. There are countless forms of suffering for children in Ukraine, but there's also a huge number of people providing assistance. Thousands of organizations and networks have been established since February 24 when the invasion began. In contrast to many other large cities in the world, this war is taking place in a country which, at least prior to the Russian invasion, had a functioning state, good digital infrastructure, and most importantly, a strong civil society. One of the private organizations is World to Ukraine, a group that has been operating an emergency shelter and a vodka distillery. And Zappos, I'm not going to try to pronounce this word. I'm sorry. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Man's got to know his limitations. This has got a bunch of Z's in it. Since April, the eastern Ukrainian industrial city is located around 30 kilometers from the front, and people from the occupied territories arrive every day, with many of them having experienced months of bombardment from missiles and artillery. In the early months of the war, the vaulted basement of the vodka factory provided mostly shelter to the refugees from the heavily bombed city of Mariupol, the port city on the Sea of Azov, which was besieged for weeks by Russian units and hundreds of people holding out in the steel factory until the city finally fell. The dead had to be buried between the residential buildings and the residents were left to drink from puddles. Russian Air Force even bombed the drama theater that was being used as an emergency shelter for displaced peoples, along with the city's maternity ward. It was nothing less than an extermination campaign against the civilian population that Moscow claimed to want to liberate. Again, I'm reading from Der Spiegel here. Traveling through the countryside, one comes across children who have built play checkpoints. You know, military checkpoints, they're playing military checkpoints. Or, as in early May in Zaport, again, this is the Z word I can't pronounce. It's got a bunch of Zs in it. Sorry, folks. A six-year-old who was wearing his UNICEF backpack on his chest as a bulletproof vest and spoke constantly of tanks and bombs while imitating the noises of explosions. A wall in the city cellar where the family seeks shelter from the violence and sleeps in bunk beds following their arrival is covered with children's drawings. Most of the children's drawings depict soldiers, war, and destruction. Children always reproduce their realities in games, said Katerina Chernova, the facility manager for the world to Ukrainians. Iranian Zaklinska, sorry folks, Irina Zaklinska arrived at the organization's shelter with three of her four children. The girls are 12 and 9 years old, with their little brother was just one and a half. The family spent over five months living in the gray zone between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Their home was located 
south of the city that I can't pronounce on the line of contact between the troops, the entire family, including the father and oldest son, tried on four separate occasions to flee the Ukrainian-controlled territory through Russian checkpoints. On the fifth try, the mother was let through with the three children, but the two men of military age were forced to remain. The father and son were finally able to make it to Europe via Russia with help of an immigrant smuggler and are now living in the Czech Republic. She says the children suffered greatly from the shortages and the daily artillery strikes. The occupiers wanted to force the children to attend the school with the Russian curriculum, adding Russian soldiers had searched their home and suspects that she belonged to the Ukrainian resistance. And the children had to go through the experience of watching two neighbors die from kidney failure because they had no access to dialysis. That is a brutal way to die, folks. In the beginning, they would ask after loud explosions how far away the detonations had been and learn how to count between them. But later, the children themselves were able to determine it, both from the direction of fire and how far away the strikes were. They could even distinguish between the different types of artillery. Your mother says frequently, though, they don't even pay attention when an explosion went off anymore. When things got particularly bad, nine-year-old Lena would hide under her parents' bed with a pillow. We wouldn't be able to get her to come out the whole night, her mother said. Little Daniel was only 11 months old when the war reached them. When the explosions would wake him up, he'd started to scream, and I felt so helpless. The family's currently surviving on 275 euros of state assistance per month, and Zelensky gets up at 3 a.m. to help out in the family's kitchen in the search for things like water. She was able to find an apartment for her and the children after months of search, and there are plenty of solidarity to go around in Ukraine, she says, but, quote, who wants a refugee family as renters? On the day before her interview with Der Spiegel, Vladimir Putin's army again fired off missiles and drones at the Ukrainian cities. There was more of a dozen strikes in the city that starts with a Z that I can't pronounce. And the alarms continued four hours and 27 minutes consistently. That's from Der Spiegel. What's going on with some of the folks in Ukraine? It's important to have perspective in the world, folks. There's lots of ugly out there. We can't cover it all even when we try to. But when it's in front of us, we need to confront it. We need to see it for what it is. Uh, this war is brutal. No, Ukraine is not a perfect country, but they didn't deserve to be invaded. And the people don't deserve to be brutalized by dictator Vladimir Putin, who has decided that this war is all about him. And thousands and thousands of people have died. Tens of thousands have been hurt and hundreds of thousands are suffering because of what he's doing. Remember, Turn down the noise on this thing. This war can stop whenever Vladimir Putin decides to stop prosecuting the war. He doesn't. So all this blood is on his head. More hotel right after this. Hurtel, usually we try to end on a good note when we have time in the program. This is only something that's potentially a good note, but it's from something that's very tragic. Most of you have probably seen or heard or seen the viral videos of Damar Hamlin on the field during the Monday night football game. They stopped the game. He suffered a cardiac arrest during the game because he was hit in the chest. While we're still waiting for him to recover and praying for him, there's some lessons to learn here. If you don't know CPR, you need to learn it. It is not hard. It's not complicated. Most courses in most communities are free. Check out hospitals, medical centers, a lot of community centers. If you have like an area rec center, places like this, even libraries, 
places where they do free classes, usually CPR classes are free or at very, very low cost. Make sure you go to them. Learn how to do this very simple life-saving skill. The few minutes that you can do something like that until an EMT, a paramedic, or other help can arrive can mean the difference between life and death. And something else you need to go look up, AEDs, the automatic external defibrillators. These things are getting to be just about everywhere in public spaces. They are not hard to operate. In fact, they're designed for people that don't know anything about medicine to use them. It's usually a four or five step process. And the new AEDs actually just have voice prompts that will tell you what to do. Uh, but crisis means you need to be prepared so in the moment you don't freak out and start reading too fast or something like that. Go ahead and familiarize yourself. Just Google AED steps, read it. You could print it out, stick it in your wallet, purse, whatever, and have those handy so that you at least in the back of your mind have that file to pull up when you might need it. AEDs save lives. Um, it looks like that's what saved life here. The problem is most people, when they have a cardiac event or a medical emergency, are not only steps away from medical professionals and elite medical help like NFL players do, where there's doctors on the sidelines and a level one trauma center was only two miles down the road. Most folks won't have that, and you may be the difference between life and death for those people. And it may be somebody you love, your child, your loved one, a friend, a neighbor, and you want to make sure the people in your life, your children, your friends and neighbors, know how to do both of those life-saving things because you may be the person live there. I've had the experience of knowing when my heart stopped. It happened to me. Now, luckily, I was in a very elite level hospital and I was already on telemetry. So when it happened, I knew it was happening. My family knew it was happening. And by the time I was unable to say anything and started to go out, they were already rushing in to take care of me. And they did. And I survived and I had really good medical care. But not everybody is already admitted to Duke Hospital when something like that happens. If you're out in the street or the field or in your home, or wherever, you need to know these two things, CPR and AED. And by the way, if you're the part of any kind of an organization, uh, a business, a restaurant, if you have a small business where customers come and go, if you're the member of a church or a school group or anything where people congregate, you need to talk to the folks that's involved or if you're the leader and look at having an AED machine. They're usually a couple hundred dollars now. They're pretty inexpensive as a group thing goes. And it can absolutely save somebody's life. So especially if you're in a high traffic area, if you're in customer service, if you're a church group, religious group, social group, school, anywhere people gather and you don't have an AED machine in house, you need to go get one, fundraise, whatever you need to do it can save somebody's life. That'll do it for her tell. Thank you so much. We just marvel at uh, the folks that listen and communicate with us about this program. Thank you so very much. Starting the new year strong. Um, there's a couple things we need to talk about real quick, though. Sometime in the end of January, 1st of February, this show will be going on hiatus. I'd like to tell you how long. I can't um, because I'm going to go have surgery. We've been talking about it a little bit on our social media. We have two plans going into that surgery. Plan A, I'll be in maybe a week or two. Uh, and we can get back to business. Plan B, it will be a lot longer than that before we get back to business. Uh, we'll update you as we can as we get firm dates and things like that. We'll let you know what we're going to be doing. There's lots of best of shows ready. We're going to have some content ready uh, for you to still be able to enjoy, but we won't be able to do new programs for probably at least a week or two. We'll let you know when that is. Uh, appreciate your prayers and concerns. We will try to be as open and honest with you about things like dates and updates and things like that as we can. In the meantime, 
we're going to keep working. We're going to finish strong until then. Uh, a lot of exciting stuff coming up on Hertel. Make sure you're subscribed. All the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get it. Really important to us that you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. It doesn't cost you anything. It only costs you a click. If you want to watch on the YouTube channel, uh, please do that. Hertel Show or my name, Andrew Donson. Search block will come right up. You can watch the program. That also has the Good Talk breakout episodes, has some of the older uh, long-form discussions on specific topics. You can check those out. There's 46 of those. Would love to see you do that. Make sure you subscribe to that to do. We do not advertise this program other than our own social media. So if you could share us on your social media, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you for that. So until we see you next time on Hertel, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well-fed. We'll talk to you again real soon for more Hurt. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Hurtel program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.